This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, October 13th, 2010. I'm Caleb Brown. The United States must find ways to devolve many of its military responsibilities around the world. So says Christopher Preble, author of The Power Problem and director of the Cato Institute's Foreign Policy Studies. At the Cato Club 200 retreat, Preble argued that normal countries defend themselves and that creating dependency is not a path forward for U.S. security. The U.S. has been the dominant military power in East Asia, arguably since the end of World War II. And we have a very sizable military presence on the Korean Peninsula, but we also have uh, a large presence in Japan, primarily in the island of Okinawa. The U.S. military power remains unmatched in the world today, and it will continue to remain unmatched in the world today. But we cannot maintain a dominant position in every single corner of the world. We have to find ways, U.S. policymakers and American citizens, if the policymakers don't take the hint, have got to find ways to devolve some of these responsibilities to our wealthy, stable, democratic allies in other parts of the world. Doug already mentioned, I want to reiterate, the European allies, you know, NATO has been a wonderful success and it should have been disbanded 20 years ago after it won a great victory over the Soviet Union. Uh, The continent has enjoyed relative peace and prosperity, security for decades. Uh, The same principle applies to East Asia. Now, North Korea continues to cause problems. It causes problems for South Korea, and it causes problems for the Japanese. But lingering hostility between the Japanese and North Korea in particular uh, pales in comparison to what the Japanese fear uh, with respect to a rising China. Beijing is exerting its influence throughout the region. It's using all the elements of power, political, economic, diplomatic, and military. Today, as I'm sure many of you know, the two countries are locked in a bitter dispute over a admittedly quite minor incident, that is a fishing trawler that collided with two Japanese Coast Guard vessels. The problem, of course, is it occurred uh, near a disputed island chain. The Japanese call it the Senkaku. The Chinese call it the Diawu, Diayu something like that. Uh, The point is that it is disputed territory, which happens, no surprise, to coincide with some mineral deposits and uh, other natural natural gas and oil and whatnot uh, on the seabed. In that, a minor dispute can become a very big problem for countries in the region and ultimately for the United States. The open question in my mind is how well will the three countries, the United States, Japan, and China, coordinate or compete for influence in East Asia. If they do it poorly, it could lead to a clash that would threaten the lives of hundreds of millions of people. Well, that's the worst case scenario, and it's our case, and it's a case I've been making for a long, long time. I'm a little embarrassed to admit that I wrote a paper about the U.S.-Japan alliance in 1991, I believe it was. I was very very young then. Uh, uh, Is a more independent Japan. As I wrote in a paper back in 2006, what we want is a Japan that's a normal country. Normal countries defend themselves. They have allies who share uh, common interests, but normal countries defend themselves. Uh, Dependencies and countries on the dole uh, rely on others to do the work for them. This kind of talk uh, faces a lot of resistance, both in Washington and in Tokyo. Military planning for decades has been based on the presumption that the U.S. military is and will be uh, the main deterrent to uh, any hostile actions against Japan. But there have been periods of tension. And 
We've seen this a bit rather dramatically over the last year. Uh, about a year ago, uh, the Democratic Party of Japan uh, won for the first time uh, an election, a parliamentary election, and uh, uh, the new prime minister, Yukio Hatayama, had made a promise in the course of the campaign that he would revisit a deal negotiated between the outgoing LDP government and the, uh, the United States, the Bush administration, and the Obama administration affirmed it, to relocate a base on Okinawa. Now, I don't want to get into all the details that uh, the, the landmass of Okinawa is, is completely dominated by U.S. military presence. Uh, it's, it's, there's also some kind of cultural and unique political characteristics in that Okinawans are seen as somewhat different from Japanese main islanders. It's, it's complicated and, and tense. And yet, Hadayama made this pledge. And then, like the dog that catches the car, he actually had to deliver on it. So, uh, in a short amount of time, Secretary Gates and other senior Obama administration officials said, Essentially, we don't care what you promised the voters in Japan. We will not revisit this thing. Hatayama was caught between a rock and a hard place. He did have an important coalition partner in his government that he needed to pass a budget. Uh, the Social Democratic Party uh, had threatened to bolt the coalition entirely if he backed down to the Americans. So what did Hatayama do? Ultimately, he backed down to the Americans and then resigned from office as did uh, a longtime power broker in the DPJ, uh, Ichiro Ozawa. Um, Hatayama was uh, replaced by this guy, uh, Naoto Khan, who was just uh, kind of essentially re-elected. There was a, a bit of a power struggle within the DPJ. Uh, but Khan was the kind of guy that both Washington and the longtime power brokers, a lot of power in, in, in Japan is held by kind of permanent bureau bureaucrats who, for obvious reasons, like the status quo. So Khan was a safe pick as far as they were concerned, and they're quite happy with him. I think it's worth dwelling for a few minutes, though, on this climb down that Hatayama was forced into, and it was quite embarrassing. At the time, he explained, well, I've, I've gained a new appreciation for the importance of the Marines in Okinawa, and it was timed uh, around the time of the sinking of the Chianan, which Doug alluded to, uh, uh, again, apparently by uh, a North Korean torpedo. Um, as an aside, it, it's quite obvious that this was there was something uh, involving the North Koreans, but there are actually some people in Japan who, who think that this was all an elaborate put on by the United States to remind them of the importance of the alliance. It's absurd, I know, but that's what they think. Um, so let's just focus for a few minutes on the troops themselves. What exactly do they do in Okinawa, and what is their role in the context of the alliance? Well, they're a tripwire force, similar to the, to the troops that we have in Korea. Their presence is intended to ensure that any attack on Okinawa in particular, and Japan more widely, uh, would be interpreted as an attack on the United States as a whole and draw the United States into uh, a full-on war, again, with whomever it is that's attacking these troops. Um, this security guarantee was enshrined, is enshrined in a still active treaty. It was negotiated back in 1960. Now, I don't think this constitutes an alliance, at least not an alliance as I'd define it, because there is no uh, reciprocity expected here. As Doug alluded to, it's similar to the South Korean. We defend them, and they, well, they don't really have any obligation to us in exchange. Um, in fact, at one time, uh, we know that the Japanese Constitution essentially is, it has an Article 9, very famous provision, uh, you know, written in there by Douglas MacArthur and the American occupation officials that essentially prevents Japan ostensibly from having its own military. And yet it does have its own military. We'll talk about that in a minute. At one point, the officials in Japan who were responsible for interpreting the Constitution actually determined 
that the Constitution would have prevented Japanese self-defense forces from assisting a U.S. warship under attack, even if that warship uh, was defending Japan. Now, in fairness, those attitudes over the last few years especially have softened quite a bit uh, without any formal change to the language of the Constitution. There's been essentially a redefinition, their own form of judicial activism, and it's allowed for the kinds of deployments, for example, back in 2004, uh, for the first time since the end of World War II, uh, Japan, Japan sent troops to a combat zone, to Iraq. Uh, this was a, a, a very big deal for George Bush, and, and uh, then Prime Minister Koizumi had a very close personal relationship by, by all appearances. And, and for Bush, this was the real demonstration of the, of the value of the alliance. I, I saw it quite differently. I saw it as a country that has a limited military capability uh, sending troops to a far distant land to curry favor with Big Brother. And that, to me, is not a very sustainable uh, alliance over the long term. Not surprisingly, many Japanese really resented that deployment, and it was very unpopular. I don't think anyone other than Koizumi, who had a very particular kind of personal popularity, could have pulled it off. And I question whether another prime minister can do it again. Uh, with Hatayama's resignation, the Japanese have had five prime ministers in five years. Okay. So this is a very fragile political state right now, domestically. Christopher Preble is director of foreign policy studies at the Cato Institute and author of The Power Problem. You can order your copy at Cato.org.